Let me start uh, this session uh, with a question. It's a question that I borrowed from Dr. R.C. Sproul. So we're looking at vertical forgiveness, at God's forgiveness and our guilt. Uh, this is the second part of uh, Pastor Jason Cruz's. Uh, we, we did this Sunday School series a few weeks ago. Well, it really, it's probably a couple of months ago, and we were thinking through these issues. And he gave all the preliminaries that, in, in his lecture. I'm not going to revisit that. But what I want to ask you uh, is an important question, and it's this. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? What do you have your counselees do with their guilt? Now, the question is not whether your counselees have guilt or whether you have guilt. Your guilt is a given. Right? One modern secular psychologist said that guilt is our unassailable historical condition. Right? You have guilt. Uh, the question is, what are you doing with it? And that is a, a very important question. Guilt is a major problem in our society. Uh, I read an article a few weeks ago by an English professor and critical theorist. It's interesting, the interplay between critical race theory and some of these other critical theories and, and dealing with guilt. Well, this English professor... Uh, began her article this way, and I want you to, to listen to how she begins. I feel guilty about everything. Already today, I felt guilty about having said the wrong thing to a friend. Then I felt guilty about avoiding that friend because of the wrong thing I'd said. Plus, I haven't called my mother yet today. Guilty. And I really should have organized something special for my husband's birthday. Guilty. I gave the wrong kind of food to my child. Guilty. I've been cutting corners at work lately. Guilty. I skipped breakfast. Guilty. I snacked instead. Double guilty. I'm taking up all this space in a world with not enough space in it. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Nor am I feeling good about feeling bad. Not when my sophisticated friends never fail to remind me how self-involved and self-aggrandizing, politically conservative and morally stunted the guilty are. Poor me. Guilty about feeling guilty. Filial guilt, fraternal guilt, spousal guilt, maternal guilt, peer guilt, work guilt, middle class guilt, white guilt, liberal guilt, historical guilt, Jewish guilt. I'm guilty of them all. This poor lady captures well the problem of guilt in our society. Guilt is pervasive, and the truth is that we are a guilt-ridden people. We ourselves have to deal with guilt as Christians. We work through that, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But our counselees especially come to us often feeling guilt. Well, preliminarily, let me give us you a, a, a definition of guilt. Right, and we'll unpack this a little more later on. But let's, let's define guilt as the miserable effect that sin brings into a person's life. Right, the miserable effect that sin brings into a person's life. 
the universal response to this guilt and these miserable effects that guilt brings from our society has been to wage an all-out war against guilt. The problem, though, is that our society encourages all the behavior that causes our conscience to accuse us and produce guilt, makes us guilty and feel guilty, yet our society does not want to tolerate the guilt that our society produces. Guilt to the world is a pollutant, right? It's a pollutant. It's a fly in the ointment. right? It's, It's a terrible thing. I hate it. I don't want it. Uh, One contemporary psychologist said that guilt is a useless emotion. Another said guilt is a dead weight that keeps us from stepping into our full power and potential. Because society views guilt this way, right? It's a pollutant we just need to get rid of. Because society views it that way, they offer all sorts of counsel on how to deal with guilt. Let me give you a few of those. This is the world's counsel on how to deal with your guilt. Well, according to culture, you can deny your guilt, right? This is our default, I think. We deny guilt. Guilt is merely, according to society, a a societal construct that's been imposed on us from our parents and society, culture, religions, right? We feel guilty because the people outside of us have have told us that we have to restrict our inner self, right? What we really need to do, this is the id, right? This is Freud's id. This is what we, what we really need to do is just let those instincts within you just come out, right? If society didn't tell us not to hit, then we would never feel guilty when we hit other people, right? Society is the problem. If our parents had not instructed us on how to behave at the dinner table, then we would never feel guilty when we misbehave at the dinner table. The problem is, according to society here, guilt is, is simply a feeling that we have that is the result of outside influence. And this is where the idea of false guilt emerged. It's just... It's artificial. It's not substantial. It's not real. Uh, If guilt is merely a societal construct that's oppressing us from living and and coming to terms with who we really are, then we need to throw off guilt and allow our fleshly desires to rule. We do this simply by denying the reality of guilt. Guilt is just an artificial feeling. The way we need to deal with it is just uproot it and get rid of it. An illustration would be, it's like a parasite, right? It's there, you see its effects in your life, and, and what we want to do is just get rid of it. It's this parasite that saps all the life out of us. We just need to throw it, throw it out. And so that's a way to deal with guilt. Deny it. Deny its existence. And, and there, will, there are people who do that. Our society does this. To escape it, just deny it. But there's a second way that you can process your guilt, according to the world's counsel, is you can defy your guilt, right? This is what the Bible calls hardening your conscience, right? Your, your conscience is like a warning light that goes off when something is not right, right? Our consciences are, are all trained either to be biblical or unbiblical, 
so when we do something that goes against our conscience, the alarm goes off, right? It's like the smoke alarm. This is a common analogy. It's a smoke alarm. You know, you're downstairs in the basement. Uh, you're enjoying whatever, your TV room, your family's downstairs, and you hear the beep going off upstairs. And uh, so you run upstairs and you find out, oh, we left the, the, the oven on and the pan is there and there's popcorn in there and it's all the smoke coming up and there's, it's going to be a fire pretty soon if we're not careful. And the smoke alarm's going off, right? So what do you do? Well, you just go over to the smoke alarm and you just pull it off, take the batteries out, and you throw it away. Right? That's defying your conscience. Right? Now, what we do is the smoke alarm is telling us that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. Right? Your conscience accuses you when something is wrong. Right? So it tells you that you're guilty. It tells you that there's something that needs to be addressed. But society says, no, just defy it. Defy that conscience. Defy that alarm. And Paul speaks of those who in the last days will continue to sin to the degree that they will be seared in their own consciences. That's 1 Timothy 4.2. In Ephesians 4.19, he speaks, he speaks of those who have become callous since they have given themselves over to sensuality and sin. The conscience can be seared and calloused and lose its effectiveness. And foolishly, the world says that the way you want to escape your guilt is just by defying it, right? Just keep doing what you're doing, and then you won't feel guilty after a while. And that's true, in one sense. Well, there's a third way to escape your guilt. You can deny your guilt, defy your guilt, or you can drown your guilt. What are some ways that society offers us, counsels us, to drown our guilt. What are, drinking. I actually read an article a few weeks ago about uh, teenage drinking. And they talked about the effects of teenage drinking. And it just affirmed what things we already know. Uh, that the function of drinking, when you drink enough alcohol, um, you, it has the effect of common psychotropic drugs on your mind. Right? It just it causes you to no longer process, to think, or to feel, right? So, but that's definitely one way, right? We just drown our our guilt, so we don't have to think about it. What are other ways? Distractions. Yes, we amuse ourselves to death, right? So we don't have to think or feel, right? We shop. Yeah, we just get more. That's true. Work. Yeah, that's right. Anything else? Ways to drown your guilt? Eat. Yeah, certainly. Right, so when someone comes to us, uh, comes to you in your counseling room, and uh, all they're wanting to do is work all the time. Work, work, work. That's all I want to do. Well, you ask, what, what's going on here? Or there's a drinking problem. Or there's even depression. Right? There's issues with uh, depression. What's going on here? Right? Are they trying to drown their guilt? Right? And we want to help them see what's happening 
I want to help them own it because we're going to look at God's forgiveness and our guilt. The only way you can be forgiven of your guilt is by owning it. And we'll look at that in a few minutes. Well, you can, you can deny your guilt, defy your guilt, drown your guilt, or you can deflect your guilt. Deflect your guilt. That's the big one in our culture right now. But it's always been a big one. Right? You can claim the status of a victim. I feel guilty. It's not my fault. Right? This is the most popular way our society has to handle guilt right now. Uh, we shift blame, or we call it blame shifting, uh, onto our parents, siblings, society, oppressive systemic structures. We see this uh, in modern psychology. It's being pushed even in churches now in the social justice movement. Uh, this is a, a, a way for us to deflect blame onto other people. It's not my fault that I feel this way, so how can I deal with it? Well, let me just put it on someone else. Right? Where did that tactic begin? Right. right. The woman you gave me. That's right. So in that sense, we get it honestly. Right? Uh, our, our parents have been doing this for a long time, and we've... In this sense, we've really um, mastered the art of blame shifting, right? And we can deflect our guilt onto other people. Uh, because this is such a relevant issue, turn in your Bibles with me to Ezekiel. Deflecting guilt is the default, it seems, right now. But in Ezekiel 18, this issue is addressed head-on, and it's worth just having it marked in your Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 18. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers... Eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. What do you mean by that proverb? Well, what they're saying here is our fathers, they ate this bad food, right? These grapes that were not good. And now, for some reason, our mouths are experiencing this bitter taste because of what they ate. In other words, the situation that we're in as a nation is not our fault. Right? This is someone else's fault. We're not responsible. And notice God's response in verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And how does that verse conclude? The soul who sins will die. Each person will bear their own guilt. Blame shifting, we're done with it. 
And then he goes on, really, from verse 5 to verse 24 and gives a series of case studies. Uh, the first one was, what about, what about a righteous man who practices justice? Um, he's faithful. He, he, he does what he needs to do. And then verse 9, you know, what about him? Is he going to have to bear his guilt? Yes, he will, right? He's going to have to bear his guilt. Although he's righteous, he will bear his guilt. Well, that sets up for the second case study that's in verses 10 to 13. What about if this righteous man who does everything right and is upright, what if he has a wicked son? Is, is God going to pardon this wicked son because his dad was a righteous man? Well, verse thir- well, let's see, verse 13, he will not live. He has committed all these abominations and he will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Right? The son of a righteous man will have to bear his guilt his- on his own. He's responsible for his sin. Well, what about that righteous man who has, or that wicked man, rather, who has a righteous son? What about him? Well, verses 14 to 20, he lays out the fact that even the wicked man's son who lives righteously, he has to deal with God on his own, right? And he reports to God directly in that sense, right? He can't, uh, just like the wicked man can't piggyback on the righteous father's goodness, well, the wicked man can't piggyback on his son's goodness, and the righteous son is culpable, responsible before God. And then it gets to verse 20. The person who sins will die. And then in verse 21 to 23, if the wicked man repents, he can be forgiven. In verse 24, if the formerly righteous man, he lived a righteous life, but then he starts living a life of sin, well, he will also die. The point of this whole chapter, I'd encourage you just to think through it, read it, is to demonstrate that each individual is responsible for their sin. You cannot deflect your guilt onto anyone else. You have to deal with it yourself. And isn't this really key in counseling, right? Personal responsibility. The question, though, is not was, what does the world say about our guilt? And the question is not uh, what the world counsels us regarding our guilt. The big question is, what does God say about our guilt? Well, let me give you a definition of guilt. And then in the verses that follow, we're going to look at a series of verses. I want to demonstrate this definition from these verses. So here's the definition. Guilt is a reality. It's a reality. It's not a delusion. Um, It's not uh, something that can just be deflected and diverted. It's a reality that we have to own. And biblically speaking, guilt is what you incur whenever you violate God's perfect law. It's legal liability or culpability to punishment. All right, it's a it's what you incur as an individual whenever you violate God's law. And so it's legal liability or culpability, and we'll see that 
manifested in the in the following text. And I've arranged these uh, texts into four categories, just for uh, for us to sort of lay hold of. Four, four categories that highlight different aspects of our guilt before God. First, guilt is a universal reality. We know that. We experience that. We see that all the time. We know that within ourselves. But how do we know that biblically? Well, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? No one in life escapes the experience of guilt. All right, if guilt is legal liability or culpability for breaking God's law, and sin is law-breaking, and all have sinned, all are guilty. Right? You're tracking? It's 4.30. That was a, a long chain there. Good. You look like you're tracking. So Romans 3.23. And then Leviticus 5.17 says this. Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware. Right? He, he just wasn't aware of, of God's law. Still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. Right? Isaiah 24 says this, The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Guilt is a universal experience of humanity because humanity is universally guilty before God. Second, guilt is an objective fact and not a feeling. There are feelings with guilt. When you're guilty, you feel bad. But we have to be clear that we don't confuse feelings of guilt and guilt. Right? Guilt produces bad feelings. And, and we just want to make sure we keep that distinction. Right? Because there is um, there is a segment of the world, society would say this too, that guilt is just a feeling um, and it's just a false, it's false guilt that can just be wiped away. But we're saying no, we're all guilty before God. And that guilt has to be owned before it can be, um, it has to be personally owned before we can experience the joy of God's forgiveness for our guilt. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. And here James teaches that every single sin, however insignificant it may appear to be, makes the doer of that sin guilty of all God's law. And therefore, they are liable to judgment, culpable, responsible before God for their breach of His law. All right? This is real guilt, right? because God's law is real. And it's a fact. This is personal culpability before God. It has nothing to do with how you feel about it at this point. It's just reality. Does that make sense? 
All right. So guilt is a universal reality, according to Scripture. It's an objective fact. But it's also portrayed or conveyed to us as an unpayable debt. Throughout Scripture, God speaks of our guilt as mounding up, right? of building up. It, it, it's compounding like a credit card, right? You remember the language of uh, the Old Testament. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, right? There's, there's this measure of our guilt that just builds and builds. Hebrews, or Hosea 13, 12 says, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. Right? His sin is stored up. Right? Whenever there's sin, there's guilt. It's stored up. Ezra 9, 6-7, Ezra prays this, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt and on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. Guilt is building up. It's growing and accruing. And it weighs people down. Isaiah one four: A last sinful nation, nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. Right? Guilt is heavy on us. Right? Which is why guilt and depression are so associated. And if there's not a one for one, but they are associated because when we are guilty, we feel the weight of our sin. And you know that as believers. Right? It's interesting. Isaiah twenty four twenty says it this way. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it. (laughs) All the weight of all of these guilty people on this planet is causing it to shake, right? Matthew 18, 21 to 25, Jesus directly connects our guilt to the imagery of debt. Right? Matthew 18 is a really common passage when we're thinking about forgiveness, specifically horizontal forgiveness. But I want to I introduce it to you now, and we'll close it up at the end by way of application. Uh, but let me, let me read this to you. Matthew 18, uh, verses 21. Let's turn there together. I just want you to see that Jesus is... Really, his metaphor, his picture of guilt, sin and guilt, is this picture of debt. And we see that, Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? How big of a debt can I let people carry around? Right? When do I have to come in and say, all right, pay up? Or that's it. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's the kind of load you need to carry. And then verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents. 
All right, that is uh, the equivalent of 20 years of labor, and it would take 500 years to work off the debt. All right, a talent is the equivalent of 20 years of labor. One talent is 20 years. It would take you about 500 years to work off that debt. All right, it's a pretty big debt, pretty steep. That's, it's a debt that would definitely weigh you down, right? Well, that slave was brought to the master in verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now, we're going to come back to this verse and finish out how Jesus uses this metaphor. But at this point, I just want to show you that God speaks about our debt, I mean our guilt, as a debt that is accruing and accruing. And when we think about God's uh, provision for our debt or for our sin, it's helpful that we understand our sin as a big debt that could never be repaid. Well, because of that, our guilt is a serious problem. It's a serious problem. We're not dealing with... um, a God who just wipes away debt without any payment. That's not how God functions. Notice Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud. This is Moses on the cloud with the Lord. And stood there with Moses, or him, as he called upon him, as he called upon the name of the Lord. And then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. We love that, right? We love to cling to that. Verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Praise God. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. God's dealing with sin is very serious. Our guilt is not something to joke about. Romans one eighteen: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God deals heavy-handedly with sin and we want personally we want that to be true we want it is true but we want to apprehend that in our own um, enjoyment of god we want to know and and remember that he deals absolutely heavy-handedly with sin so what that does is it magnifies what jesus has done for us on the cross hebrews ten twenty eight says Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? If, if they were treated severely in the Old Testament, how do you think God is going to treat people now who trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. He, was in, he has insulted the spirit of grace. Someone who tastes of Christianity, someone who is maybe um, influenced by some of 
of Christian, some Christian principles or part of a church and then decides, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of that church anymore. Right? I, don't want, I don't want anything to do with God or the church. Or they're trampling underfoot the Son of God. And how, how severe is God going to deal with them if he dealt so harshly with people in the Old Covenant? How, how harshly is he going to deal with people now who despise his Son? Right? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we owe him an immeasurable debt. And this is the one with whom we have to do. So our guilt is universal. It's an objective fact. It points to an unpayable debt that is serious because the God with whom we have to do is a just judge who must punish sin. So that brings us all the way back around to the question, what do we do with our guilt? What do we do with it? Well, the question is much better asked if we we pose it this way. What has God done with your guilt? What has he done with it? Well, this is the gospel, and this is a joy. Well, the answer is that God has pardoned it. God has pardoned it. He has, in his immeasurable kindness, pardoned your objective guilt. That, my friends, is the core of the good news. Here's what he's done. First, he has laid the punishment for our sin onto Jesus. Right? Sin brings guilt. Right? If guilt is what we incur when we break God's law, we could define sin and can define sin as law breaking. All right. Well, God, in his immeasurable kindness, laid the punishment for our sin onto his son. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. I don't know how often you, you linger in Isaiah 53, uh, but I would exhort you to do that. Uh, it's a sweet, sweet gospel text in the middle of the Bible. Isaiah 53, uh, we're going to read through verse 4, uh, starting at verse 4, and we're going to work, work our way through this passage. Uh, so God has laid the punishment for our guilt and sin onto Jesus. This is what he has objectively done. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Let's jump down to verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
Notice to the notice this. Verse ten. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as what? A guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, this guilt offering on our behalf, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. (laughs) Amen. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil or the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Let me ask you a question. Who does Jesus intercede for? According to Isaiah 53 verse 12. Transgressors. Are you a transgressor? (laughs) Right? What a joy. We have a a man, the God-man, who willingly bore the punishment for our guilt on himself. And even now, he intercedes for not the people who counsel perfectly, (laughs) not the people who've got it all down, but for transgressors. Right? Sometimes it's just sweet to read this text and just just let it soak in you. And sometimes we need to remember that when we feel like we are utter failures, that is when we are usually at our lowest, most humble place, and that's where the Lord loves to draw near to us. When we feel our weakest, that's when He draws near. It's really sweet. But the Lord, in His great kindness, has laid the punishment for our sin onto Jesus. This is why the New Testament, John one twenty nine, calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? He, he Himself was offered once to bear the sins of many. And friends, if you have trusted in Christ, right, you are the many. And your sins have been borne. This is the sort of thing we have to give our counselees who come in, you know, just moping. And life is hard and they're weighed down by their guilt. We have to come to them and say, you are a sinner. That's true. But did you know who Jesus intercedes for? Let me tell you what he's done for you. I'm getting ahead of myself. Second, God has pardoned us of all our debt. He's pardoned us of all our debt. Remember the, the New Testament, Old Testament uses this imagery of debt to convey what our guilt is. It's, it's like a mound of debt, a mountain of debt. Well, Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says this, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of what debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. Here was the record of your debt against God. Written down, kept meticulously. And here it is. The catalog of your debt. The list containing all that you owe Him. And Paul says, in Christ, the list has been erased. Canceled out. Second, not only did God erase the record of our debt, He nailed that erased record to the cross. It's one thing to erase a record. It's another thing to take it and throw it in the fire. It's never going to be revisited. It's been taken care of. Christ took the transfer of our debt onto Himself and He paid what we owe. And the consequence is that we are pardoned. Friends, that's what it means to be forgiven of your transgression. The debt that you owed, the list of your sins, nailed to a cross, erased, nailed to a cross, done away with entirely. So, don't carry around in your head the list of your transgression that Christ has nailed to the cross. Don't carry that thing around. You're the only one keeping the record of it. It's been dealt with. Get rid of it and move on. Psalm 103 uh, says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. I don't know if I have that on the slide. Nope. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Listen to this, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, right? Remember, our guilt was up to the heavens, right? Well, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgression from us, He has dealt with it. Christ has paid the debt And because of that, God has pardoned us of what we owed. Third, God has promised not to count your debt against you. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. We've got some overlap there. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, their days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the days I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And listen closely. This is what God has promised to do for Israel in the future, right? And we participate in this new covenant by our union with Christ. And listen to what He promises to do. I will put My law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be My people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember No more. That is God's new covenant promise. And it's a promise to pardon. Isaiah 53, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. 
We know when God says, I will not remember your sins, He's saying, I will not remember your sins against you. The debt has been paid. The punishment has been endured by Christ. And God Himself promises guilty sinners He will not punish them in the future because of Christ. Every sinner who repents. That is reality. That's reality. It's objective forgiveness. That means it doesn't matter how you feel about that. That's the truth. Right? Well, there's this thing called the subjective. Right? Feelings. Right? And sometimes those get out of proportion to reality. That's why we always want to be led by our thinking. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, Ephesians 4, 26. Um, we want to be led by our thinking. What if I don't feel forgiven? Isn't that an issue? It's an issue you face, you know, probably if you're like me, every couple of weeks, every week maybe. Um, you wake up and you're like, man, I just feel lousy. And I've got to teach the Bible tomorrow. <laughs> um, what do, I, what do you do when you don't feel forgiven? What do you guys do? You rehearse the gospel. And why do you do that? Why do you rehearse the gospel? The fact that I have been forgiven. There's a great story. Um, R.C. Sproul tells. There's a little book called um, What to Do with Your Guilt. Or What Can I Do with My Guilt by R.C. Sproul. It's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. Um, In there, he tells a story about when he was, I think, in seminary, and he goes to his pastor, and he's feeling guilty. And he goes to his pastor, and he says, Pastor, I just feel, you know, I just feel guilty. And his pastor took him to 1 John 1, 8, um, who says, if anyone uh, has no sin, uh, he makes himself a liar. And his pastor said, well, it doesn't seem like you're saying you don't have sin, right? You have sin, true? And R.C. said, yes, I, yeah, I have sin. That's why I'm here. I just feel guilty. And he said, okay, okay. Here's what you need to do. Turn to 1 John 1, 9. Right, so he turned to 1 John 1, 9. And uh, he said, okay, why don't you read that? And so Dr. Sproul says he, he read it. Okay, um, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And uh, Dr. Sproul's pastor said, okay, um, do you, do you, did you read that? And uh, R.C. said, uh, yeah, I read it, but the problem is I just don't feel it. And he said, oh, okay, you don't feel it. I see. Um, he, here's the problem. All right, go to 1 John 1, 9 and read that. And he was like... <laughs> so he, he read the text again. He read it again, and, and Dr. Sproul said his response was... I still feel guilty. And he said, oh, okay, okay. I see clearly now what the problem is. You need to read First John 1, 9. <laughs> and he says it clicked for him what his pastor was saying. The issue with R.C. Sproul in that moment was it was not a misunderstanding of what the text said. It was actually an issue of believing the facts, the objective reality. That God had dealt once and for all with sin, right? Isn't that wonderful? And I realize I'm preaching to you now. This was supposed to be a lecture. But God has dealt with it. So let me give you a diagnostic. What do you do when your counselee uh, is struggling to feel forgiven? Take them to 1 John 1.9. Read it. 
Well, I still don't feel forgiven. Okay, repeat step one, right? And then if you keep repeating that and they keep not getting it, then you need to take them by the hand and help them understand that they have a different sin problem than they realize. Right? Their sin problem is not some, you know, just this ethereal kind of guilt feeling they have. Their actual sin problem is that they are proud and arrogant. And when God says, I will forgive you if you confess your sin, they're saying, no, I can't. It can't be that easy. i got to do something here. And here is the God of and creator of the world saying, here's what I ask you to do. Confess and I'll forgive. Right? Their problem is an, an arrogance problem. It's a pride problem. So we need to live there. We need to live in the gospel. The sister was exactly right. These are the facts of the gospel where we need to live what about the fruit of God's forgiveness? All right, so we've looked at um, we've looked at the problem of our guilt. We've looked at the reality of our guilt. Uh, we've looked at God's pardon of our guilt. What about the fruit of being forgiven? Right, what kind of people ought we to be since we have been so radically forgiven, vertically? Well, let me give you a few of these glorious realities. The fruit of God's forgiveness is that we have no condemnation. So we should live like people with no condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And listen closely to this. The term condemnation does not denote merely a pronouncement of guilt, but the adjudication of punishment. Right? There's no condemnation, meaning there's not going to be punishment adjudicated towards you. Why? Because payment God will not twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Right? The debt has been paid. It's been taken care of. Well, we, we're just going to beat the buzzer here. Secondly, fruit of God's forgiveness. We have peace with God. Right? Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? That's there. It's objective. It's the reality. We have peace with him. We also have access to him, right? Because of his gracious work to punish Jesus for your sin. This is what you get. You get a life of joy and happiness, Romans 4.8, this is a wonderful passage. Uh, Romans 4.8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. I'm going to read that again slowly. Right? Blessed or happy is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. You know your sin, right? You're aware of it. And here is God saying, Sister, I will not take any of that into account. You should be skipping around this place, right? That's the kind of fruit God's forgiveness has in our lives. The debt, the weight is lifted. How light ought we to walk? Because it's all been dealt with. And in Scripture, happiness and joy are synonymous. Right? That's, um, there's a, a slight debate about that. But when you look at the Psalms, you see that the psalmist will use happiness or blessedness and joy synonymously, right? 
And Jesus says, blessed in Sermon on the Mount, um, blessed are the poor in the poor in spirit, right? These are, that's happy, right? And it's smiley and light, right? It's happy, right? It is deep-seated joy, that's true. But there's no excuse for us to have deep-seated joy, but externally we're just kind of miserable and grumpy. No. How happy is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity? We should be happy, happy people. Well, it, it produces in us a life full of hope. Right? The fruit of this reality should make us extremely hopeful. It gives us a clean conscience. All right? Our conscience that is, was accusing us so earnestly. Right? When the Lord awakens our conscience and He causes us to come to Jesus and we see our sin for the first time and we repent, our conscience is awakened well when we are born again our conscience is renewed right it's cleansed we we can say when our conscience accuses us we can say god is the lord of conscience and his book tells me i am forgiven and that settles it right so a clean conscience it also produces in us a life of worship Psalm 51. But it also, the fruit of this forgiveness, is a life of service to God. The people who comprehend vertical forgiveness are the most selfless people on the planet. It's true. If you understand the, the greatness of God's forgiveness, you will live joyfully running in the way of His command. Right? You will live selflessly. And then lastly, turn with me back to Matthew 18. I want to close with this uh, wonderful, wonderful passage. The fruit of God's forgiveness vertically in our life is that you will then live a life of horizontal forgiveness. You will be the most impossible person to offend. And, and, And let me give you my biblical justification for that. We've got 30 seconds. All right, verse 26. Um, So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. All right, verse 25, sorry. But since he did not have the means to repay, remember here's the man who had the great debt, the Lord commanded him to be sold and all that he had, um, taken all that he had with his children and repayment to be made, verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But notice verse 28. And that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happening, all that had happened. In verse 32, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? in the same way that I had mercy 
on you. Comprehension of vertical forgiveness is the engine of a life of forgiveness and a life of service to God. Why is that? Because this is the core of the gospel. What motivates you to counsel? It's because you, we have a Lord who has been extremely gracious to us and called us to do his work. And all of that is because he has abundantly pardoned us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these, this wonderful truth. Thank you for our pardon. Thank you for our forgiveness. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.